Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuan Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about the Me Too movement in China is Dutita Ristivoyevic. She's actually my colleague and senior researcher at the University of Helsinki. Dutita works in the area of interdisciplinary Chinese studies, media studies, and international relations. Recently, she published a journal paper on the Me Too movement in China in the journal called Politics and Gender. The Me Too movement is hitting headlines again in China lately because of a huge scandal. A Chinese tennis star accuses a former top Chinese Communist Party leader of sexual assault. The name of the Chinese tennis star is Peng Shuai. On Chinese media, she posted a long letter or message describing the assault done by Zhang Gaoli. Zhang is a retired Chinese politician. He served as the senior vice premier of China between 2013 and 2018. And he was also a member of the Chinese Communist Party's Politburo Standing Committee, basically China's highest ruling body between 2012 and 2017. So thank you so much, Dissita, for willing to share your insights with us. Maybe we begin by asking, who are you? What is your research about? So thank you very much for inviting me. I am very, very happy that we have a very good timing for our conversation because this is really one extremely important moment for the topic that we will talk about, and that is Me Too movement in China. Very, very briefly about me. My name is Dushica, and I am many, many things at the same time. But for our conversation today, it is important to say that I consider myself to be a socially engaged researcher and teacher. I work on many different things. And one of those research topics that I focus on for a long time already is Chinese feminist movement in a long-term historical perspective, especially paying attention to its transnational links and support networks. So Me Too is one very, very important part, which is at the core of everything that we are going to talk about today. And it's closely related to my latest research, as you just mentioned. So thank you very much. The Me Too movement in China started in early 2018. So it seems to be a new movement. But what is the Me Too movement in China exactly? What do the activists in this movement want to achieve? So actually... Maybe this is because I'm a kind of historian, but it's not simply because of that. I would suggest to really think about a Me Too movement, not as something that all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue, it happened in 2018. Even more, I would emphasize that we should really avoid to think about, oh, is this a kind of Western thing and Western influence? Because it's not. <laughs> to be very, very, very direct, like, no, it did not start and fell from the sky in 2018. And when it comes to the U.S.-born MeToo movement, 
it is connected to it, but it has its own very rich history of a series of activisms and initiatives, at least since 1990s, that in a way set the stage for something that we are witnessing since 2018. So I would just a little bit talk about this so-called setting the stage for what we are now calling Me Too in China and what my colleagues feminists from China emphasize that it should be called Me Too. We will come back if there is time about the importance of naming it Me Too and the danger actually of calling it in that way. So if we really want to talk about the Me Too movement in China, it is really visible that this is a kind of continuation of the movement. So this is not a new movement. I would not call it a young because it is at least in this formation since the Beijing 1995 conference and complex dynamics in the last 30 years. But it is definitely a kind of a continuation of the activist collaboration in China and out of China on the issues of sexual harassment. So we have these different namings, uh, sexual harassment, Me Too, domestic violence, but it is very important to think about even the name of all these different yet very similar and interconnected activities of uh, Chinese feminists in the last 30 years. What happened in 2018 if I would somehow name it, is more of a kind of joining of Chinese feminist movement into the, the global debate, which is called Me Too movement. They choose to call it Me Too by choosing the name and by sticking to the name of the movement. They choose to be a part of this global feminist solidarity. It is very dangerous precisely because of its transnational or showing the transnational moment of the movement. So if you want to play it safe, these years, these last years in China, you say that you are concerned with sexual harassment or domestic violence, because these words are still up to the point and in certain contexts still okay for the Chinese government and for the legal system and for society to accept. However, if you want to use Me Too, you expose yourself in a completely different, highly politicized way to the reaction of the state. So what happened in 2018? Actually, it started with survey of a journalist, is Sofia Huang. She's very important. And so she's a journalist who initiated the survey among the Chinese female journalists. She interviewed around 250 female journalists. More than 80% of them answered that they had some kind of assault by their bosses. After this survey went public, one Chinese, but at that time living in Canada, she open up the stage for the official, something that we can call as the official start of the Me Too movement in China. Uh, her name is Luo Sisi. It was very symbolic, like the 1st of January 2018. She publicly described the assault that she suffered during her student days by her very, very famous Chinese professor from the university in China. So this was, in a way, a first rupture, first in a line of these stand-up women. So in a way, the whole movement is a continuation of previous, what we really can observe as a setting the stage of activist groups, gender studies programs at the universities. All of this would not have been possible 
without this long background work of 30 years. And in the last three years, with different intensity, we have individual cases of women who are coming out with their stories. They collected a kind of archive of Me Too movement because it is very important to make the archive for them because Chinese government is censoring, deleting, destroying the memory, actually investing enormous amount of effort in not only suppressing the voices, but also erasing the history of feminist movement in China. So they collected, I think, 2,600 pages of online archives. And now I am sure that they will add much more unfortunately or fortunately this is a very very continuous movement because it's not centralized movement it's very sporadic at the same time very fragile because there is no organization behind it it's individual but a huge strength lies in in solidarity behind it among surviving women they they support each other it's a very very complex situation for activists because there are no professional activists anymore in China. We can also talk about that. But we are now in a very, very decisive moment, we could even say that, when it comes to the Me Too movement in China. So when you say the archive, you mean basically documented cases, right? Yes, uh, they, they find it extremely important to have a documentation collected because the Chinese government after the 2018, when they shut down one of the most influential feminist media platform, Feminist Voices, they understand that it is so important to document in the current situation of the hyper-control of the civil society and hyper-surveillance techniques employed by the government. It is very important to memory-keeping, archiving, And since they cannot do it in the physical space in China, they are using the online space. So they have its widely and freely available document of 2,600 pages. There is a part in English and a part in Chinese. It is made by a group of volunteers. So it is, we think and we live in Northern Europe where things function completely differently. So this should be always emphasized that in the background of the Me Too, there is no paid position, there is no uh, warm office, and they, all the involved supporters of the movement and organizers of the movement, uh, they are volunteers. So even in collecting the archives, there is a group of six publicly signed, and we always should understand that not all the participants want to be named in these movements. So at least we know that these six names could go forward as creators or curators of this 2,600 pages document, huge document in the online space. Concerning those activists who have become more public, can you tell us a bit more about them? They are my colleagues. They are Most of them are out of China. They used to be connected with these so-called, it, it's a very, very weird way to address it, but professional activists, like NGO activists, they were connected to them when it was legal to have a feminist NGO. The situation for the feminist NGOs became extremely hard after 2015, and it was really one hit by another hit. First, it started to be connected with funding, of course. 
a set of laws which hit the whole civil society sector, also hit the feminist NGOs, because if you do not have funding, how do you sustain the systematic activism? Even this archive making is a kind of activism that cannot be systematically done, not to mention the monitoring, lobbying, connection with the government and legal teams, legal support. So it is extremely important to say that after the 2015, but it got really worse and worse, more, more and more strict, especially after 2018. There is a whole group of Chinese feminists who are now abroad. And at least for the case of this archive, I know that some of them are my colleagues who are studying, working on Chinese feminist history in the U.S. So we have this combination of academia, especially of history and sociology, political science. So the feminists are now abroad studying for the degrees. Those who are in China, they are in very, very blocked position, more than innovative and more than self-sacrificing and dedicating into what they are doing. Some of them are in the East Asian region, but it is really worth of emphasizing over and over that this is a work of volunteers which has a big emotional price and material price for these activists. It seems to me that this movement in China has really academic side beyond their activism. But I'm thinking, ultimately, those documents that they have created, who is the main audience for this? Is, isn't this meant for some kind of pu- raising public awareness so that more women in China are aware of their rights? Mm-hmm. Or is, I guess it's more difficult to kind of send this document to the government and say, let's do something about it, right? But I think how I would somehow observe it. So you mentioned the academic side. Yes, but the feminist academics in China are much more directly engaged in activism than it is the case in the Western academia. So the boundaries between academia and activism are very blurred. There is a group of Chinese feminists who are famous professors, filmmakers, especially of these older generations, more experienced generations. So I would agree that academic is here a part of a very, very important uh, support of the feminist movement, but it is a feminist movement in itself. So it's not a separation like we used to have here or we still have here in these other areas of the world. But the archives, I think that the importance of the archives is not only to show to the future generations uh, the importance of history, the importance of keeping the continuity of history of Chinese feminist movement is extremely important. There are many, many different reasons, but one of the extremely important reasons is they want to write their own history. They want to keep it for the future generations and to minimize the possibility of manipulation and of cutting the feminist tradition in China. Feminist tradition in China is not introduced by the West. It's not foreign force like the Chinese government is easily claiming and All anti-Western nationalisms in the world, the easiest way to discredit you is to say you are a foreign force. Chinese feminism and the whole civil society enter this game, power game, and this is one of very important intervention into that narrative because Chinese feminism is not imported, it's not foreign force, it's not hostile to China. There is a tradition and it's very important to show 
to create and to continue the tradition of different styles of Chinese feminism throughout the history. So if you ask me for whom is this archive, it is for the researchers, it is for the survivors as well, because it is very important that you have a support around you, especially after you stand up so long in, in such a hyper-controlled society. You mentioned that the Me Too was born in the United States. So concerning the Me Too movement, I mean the U.S. born movement, what is the relationship with the Chinese Me Too? I think that majority of my Chinese feminist researchers, colleagues would agree that they they really wanted to join the movement. They did not feel that this is something foreign to Chinese feminism because the whole Chinese feminist tradition in the last 30 years has been really setting the stage for this. There are even some colleagues who are saying China had Me Too before Me Too. So the name Me Too is U.S. born, to which Chinese feminists want to connect. So I would just say then that maybe if it is a one sentence long answer, Chinese Me Too movement is connected. They want to make a connection with this global and transnational feminist movement, not in any subordinate or rewriting mode or student mode. It is a far, 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 far different story. So there is a local tradition that see this global movement as an excellent opportunity and stimulus to again enrich the local tradition of feminist. Right. Do you think the Me Too movement in China is a successful movement? I mean, it's a very tricky. Yeah, in this situation, I don't think that there is a success. I mean, because the movement is primarily about injustice. So this is a movement where the survivors are addressing the public because there is no other way to get justice. So it's a way of healing a way of showing that they have strength to discuss this in public, which is a huge shame. Uh, they pay enormous private prices for their own testimonies. But in a way, it is a justice-seeking movement. And if we just see what is happening in the last three years, uh, we see that all these cases are unconnected. Women do not know each other. The supporters, volunteers, they do not know each other. So they are really these unknown people who get together to support each other. If we define success as support to the survivors of the violence, I would say definitely, because even in the environment of hyper-control, especially after 2019, the, the censorship went like crazy. So the, the amount of censorship is in a way a mark of the importance of the movement. So I don't think that the Chinese government would spend <laughs> so much the workforce to suppress something that they don't see as potentially very disturbing for the society. And Me Too must disturb society, because if we want to get justice for this kind of systematic violence that is connected to our genders and sexuality and power inequalities, of course that we need to shake, shake it strong. And if we observe how the movement is going, the shakings are stronger and stronger and stronger. So it's really like these, sometimes I imagine it as a kind of, you know, deep water. And this deep water, the surface is like steel, you know, 
So the sensors can be happy, you know, they don't see anything and they think that we don't see anything. But what is happening under the surface is just like, you know, slow, 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 slow increase and boiling and all sorts of dynamics. And then, you know, we have this explosive moment of one testimony, the second testimony, the third testimony. And, you know, it's just like this small, when one small fish jumps out of the water and come back, it's a small wave, but it is a wave. And then it, it encouraged the next one and it encouraged the next one. And these are honest stories. These are emotional stories. And I think that that is why the government is so afraid. Because you cannot say to the victim, to the survivor of sexual harassment, that, oh, you are a foreign force and you want to, you know, you work for these uh, bad foreigners who want to pull down the government. Uh, somehow the power of, of these women and of the movement and the dangers from the side of the government is because it is honest, because it is really a very relatable issue, not only to women, but I think that for the broad, broad the population in and out of China. Definitely, if the success is awareness, courage, support, yes. I see a similarity because I've done research about, you know, like a public crisis in China in general. And I can see that in this very super control authoritarian mm -hmm. states, online environment is very important. Yes. But maybe you can say a bit about the online space. I am fascinated by my Chinese colleagues. <laughs> I am fascinated by the amount of creativity and how inventive they are and how they do not give up. They find a way to connect. So this is how we still have the way to communicate. Sometimes they communicate through the encrypted platforms, but they find a way to communicate and to spread the discussions even through the most controlled environment of Chinese social platforms as well. You mentioned before that the feminist movement and also collective actions in general seems to be fading after 2019 because the Chinese party state really wanted to exercise more control. And I'm thinking about now uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic, and there are a lot of lockdowns. I just wonder what is your observation in the um, current situation? When it comes to Me Too, so definitely there is a kind of lower frequency of the cases that get to public. So the censorship is stricter, the control is stricter, and definitely COVID brought up these new ideas about community and the importance of solidarity and, and all of this. Let's return to that deep water that I mentioned. So this is how I somehow imagine the civil society scene in China. So yes, definitely in the last two years, the surface of the water is very still, but I would not be so certain that under the surface, we do not see many, many things that are just, it's the matter of time when they are going to be out. Definitely the, the online space became much more controlled and limited, but just when it comes to me too, I would say, as you also mentioned, this academic moment, so since I really believe that the connection between feminist academia and feminist activism in China is much more interconnected than in many, many different contexts, webinars became a very frequent way of discussing the movement. Discussing the movement in the case of MeToo is keeping the movement going because it is what is needed for the next women to stand up is courage, is the encouragement and solidarity and the sense that they are not alone. 
they should not be ashamed. And this kind of, again, setting the stage and preparing and not, again, not allowing to be erased or not remembered, this has been going on through the conferences and webinars and discussions. It was a very lively year for feminist discussions in 2019 and 2020. There is a big new platform opened in Chinese specifically for the discussions on feminism. They are doing a great job of making the community in a way through the academic means, but not limited to the academic world. Speaking about the current situation, I think the latest mm -hmm. famous uh, yes. woman to stand up is uh, what I just mentioned, this Chinese tennis star. She's world famous. Her name is Peng Shuai. And then she put a Weibo about her, her experience of being sexually assaulted by the mm -hmm. uh, former vice premier Zhang Gaoli years ago. And then mm -hmm. she actually continued to have some kind of consensual relationship with him for years. But now the news kind of broke out because she kind of spoke up and put the information online. Of course, the information was deleted soon after, but many people nowadays with their smartphone, they just take picture. So yes. the, the picture has been circulating in China and beyond. I have my personal take on this, but I want <laughs> to hear what you say first. Oh, I think that this is a big, big, big moment. So yes, Peng Shui is the, the biggest tennis female superstar in China. So she was, throughout her career, she was very much loved by CCTV, by the nation. You know, she is definitely not someone whom it would be easy to dismiss. So when she stood up with this letter, we both read this letter. I, I have to say that I was so touched by this letter because it is a very confusing letter. It is obvious that she did not have some kind of, you know, clear head. And this is a completely common thing in, in survivors of harassment and violence, that it is very difficult to put the whole picture in some kind of narrative that will be acceptable for you. So the whole letter that she wrote, it's not a small letter, it's, it's a, a confusing one. What we see is that, yes, she had this relationship with this very powerful, very influential man. He is 40, 40 years older than she is. Even though his photos, uh, he dyes his hair <laughs> in black neatly. Chinese uh, male CCP Politburo members, they all dye their hairs to look younger. Tangoli is one of those who looks like much younger, but there is a significant age difference, arguable power difference. She talks about this assault. She talks that there were at least one or maybe they could even claim two occasions when she got sexually assaulted. The situation is very hard to talk about because she is aware that she was a mistress of a married man. We have a figure of a wife of this powerful man whose role in the whole abuse is not quite clear. There is the interpretation of the text possible that she knew, that the wife knew about the young mistress and harassed her. So as one of commentators, Chang Ping, he, he wrote a wonderful piece for Chinese language uh, Deutsche Welle. He said, if this would be a kind of this traditional genre of Chinese literature, it's called a palace intrigue. Uh, this is a rewriting of the genre because the mistress is independent and she stands up and she calls the powerful man and she calls the vice premier by his name 
And yes, she is aware of her own feelings are so confusing. And she is aware that she will be blamed and that she will be judged. But nonetheless, what is visible from this letter in my eyes is this pain. So she is in pain. She is deeply hurt. And she decided not to stand it anymore. So this is a personal moment behind the story. However, as we know, the Me Too is not only about the personal, it is very, very much about the political and the power inequality. So we see very clearly, she addresses him in the way you thought that you are so important that nobody can touch you. And I know, I am paraphrasing now, I know that that is true. This is like an uh, egg fighting with a rock and moth going to the fire, knowing that this will be the end, but still I want to speak up. So she is aware of her own disempowerment in front of these powerful party men, and yet she decides to stand up. This is so important for the continuation of the Me Too movement. She never say, I am a part of the Me Too movement. And there are some kind of arguments like, this is unhappy relationship. If this would be a relationship between the neighbors, <laughs> between school children, school friends of a similar status and standing, maybe. But even then, I would look much, much deeper into the power inequalities and how this influence what was expected from her as a woman and how it got sexualized. But this is definitely a clear case of Me Too. It is much more than Me Too because, for instance, it shows the awareness of the CCP leaders in their protection. So we see that there is this air of untouchability in this man. We even see the role of sport. Actually, this was a very interesting for me to think about how we see that tennis as a sport is a kind of networking event for the elite in contemporary China because the assault happened after the former vice prime minister and his wife invited Peng Shui to their house to play tennis. The role of sport is at the center of this Guangxi networking and making and it goes to these highest echelons of Communist Party. Although the news has been censored in China, of course, mm -hmm. internationally, China experts have been discussing these yes. events. And it really depends on how you look at it. it mm -hmm. I also read that letter. And as a female, I feel this cannot be fake. I also understand the significance for the Me Too movement. But I just would like to share with our listeners another perspective. The issue concerns really the timing. Mm -hmm. uh, the timing, why she, of course, she could just emotionally now feel like I want to throw out everything. But another interpretation is that the timing is related to the sixth plenary session of the Communist Party of China. And as we know, there has been a lot of discussion about the power struggles between the Communist Party leaders. And there are rumors like the Xi Jinping and also mm -hmm. the Jiang Zemin, their relationship and their faction. Mostly you hear these kind of things from news reports. They like to have sensations to say, oh, there's a, there's a faction, there's a disagreement. So what that means is that some people kind of uh, suspect actually Peng Shui has had the blessing of some mm -hmm. close people of Xi Jinping to deliberately send out uh, this message to undermine Zhang Gaoli because Zhang Gaoli belongs to Jiang Zemin's faction. One could never really testify if this is really mm -hmm. true. I'm just reading this and keep thinking, what is exactly the implication of this incident? 
Yes, and there is a, always a possibility that we will actually never know about these uh, background struggles. But one thing is for sure, I don't think that anyone would lie, that anyone would want to be remembered in the way that Pang Shui wrote in her letter. This letter is not self-celebratory. This letter is not, she is not a perfect victim. She is not a perfect woman. She is, she is in this very gray ethical area. We could sympathize or not, but I don't think that anyone would want to lie, to represent herself in that way. In a way, I, I also read a lot about this. Yes, it is a background. Why now? You know, it's a very, very nice way to move the, the, the attention from the problem. And the problem is that this kind of power abuse, power abusive sexualized violence, which is highly gendered, is systematic. If it happened to Peng Shui, then we can only imagine what happens to women who are not so famous, who are not so independent, who are in some smaller Chinese cities or, or even villages. So it really, somehow, I would always really go back to, yes, for sure, it's a plan. There, there is always something going on in China that you can ask why now, why not earlier? Well, you know, she felt that now is enough. I would somehow always go from that point. She decided to do it now. Let's wait. Let's not rush. There is a different also a kind of interpretation that, you know, the Western media are now also very interested in her because the man that she's accusing is such high CCP member and this is now showing corruption of CCP. Thank you very much, Tisita, for sharing your insight. <laughs> in a way, I agree with you. I think the courage is what I see because in, a, in Peng Shui's message, you can see that she's not depicting herself as a perfect woman. Yes. But she actually agreed to have a consensual relationship for several She cannot get so, anything. She can yeah. just lose. She, there is nothing that she can get from this letter. She can only get judged and commented by, you know, everyone. There is nothing to gain for her. So I would be very, very curious to see First, uh, there is a code of talking about it in Chinese internet, but I think that it is a good code and it's like, I hope that she is safe. So whenever you read the Chinese internet and you see, I hope that she is safe, it's about punk. So I really hope that she is safe. So this is now most important. Is Peng Shui safe? Well, that's what has been puzzling the world. After a global outcry for her safety, Peng Shui reappeared around two weeks later in Beijing when she held a video call with International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach. But the Women's Tennis Association has said that this does not address or elevate concerns about her health and safety, something that the EU also has echoed. So what is your take on this digital? Well, I, I think that this is really the most important question to, to ask. What is actually happening with Peng Shui after she made these allegations and after she just had to withdraw from the public? I think that this is a very, very tricky question, elusive question, because two weeks she was out of the sight and then she reappeared. So is this enough? Is it enough that we see her photo? First, it was something that was represented as her email. That did not convince almost anyone, <laughs> I think. After that, from China, we got some kind of photos and video material from the restaurant. That did not echo well 
as well in the international audience. And especially if we know that still in the Chinese social media space, it is impossible to find this news. It is impossible to read this supposed letter of hers or see her posts. So if we know this discrepancy between what has been showed to the world and what has been showed to China and Chinese audience, we must ask the questions of safety. And then this latest moment that you mentioned, the Olympic International Olympic Committee moment where we get the news that the Buck, Thomas Buck, had a conversation. We see the photo where Pound is smiling and somehow we got the message that, okay, they talked, everything was fine, she is alive and she is well. Is this really proving anything? Uh, keep in mind the informations that we have already for a while how the Chinese government has a mechanism of almost blackmailing, under quotation mark, problematic people. So it's not only about you, and it's not only about your body, your appearance, your health, your safety. In the lack of other measures, your family members are also brought into this paying the price of disagreeing or endangering the picture and the image of China and CCP, constructed image of China. So for me, it is clear that this is not enough. These are staged meetings. We still do not see that she is talking at all about the abuse, sexual abuse accusations that she mentioned in the email. And we, in a way, see a kind of moving of attention to her appearing in public because the staging of all these meetings clearly show that she is not safe. What do you think about this international attention on her case? For already some time, international attention can be crucial. It is so important and it is very, very admirable to see how many different colleagues of Peng stood up and asked, okay, we don't see her. What is happening with her? So many institutions, international, not only NGOs, not only feminist institutions, so many actors uh, are paying attention to this case. So I would say that on the one hand, it is crucial that this attention do not dissolve I would just want to emphasize one thing that we should at the same time be very, very wary about. This is a perfect situation to misuse the abuse of one woman to put, to use her case for some other political means. I think that we have a moral obligation to stop or to call out this kind of voices. Of course, there will be this kind of attempts to use this uh, attention, well-intentioned attention and care of the international community for some other completely not feminist, not related to her personal problems kind of aims. So I think that it is very important not to allow that the abuse of Peng Shui, Peng Shui as both a woman and both a Chinese citizen as the object of abuse, different kind of intersecting abuses that we should never easily forget that abuse is what we want to be stopped in this case. So let us not allow that this abuse go to the background and that some other political struggles plays through Peng, because we see it from, from Chinese government that there are already reactions, oh, this is hyper-politicized. This is the easiest, the most common way that the criticism pointed to the authoritarian regimes worldwide, not only to, to China, come about, oh, this is Western politicization. Let us not give them any reason 
to say that this is a Western politicization. Let us always return to the issues of abuse, abuse of a citizen and abuse of a woman as a citizen in a particular context. Thank you very much, Dizita, for sharing your insights with us today. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Julie Yuwen Chen and Dusica Ristivojevic at the University of Helsinki, Finland. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.